Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And now that our hot, steamy summer is officially over, we're looking forward to those crisp, leaves-changing days of autumn with a show all about falling. We hit the streets to see what your favorite things are about fall in the Washington region, and here's what you had to say. Definitely jumping in piles of leaves. Just be outside, uh, get out of the city. Drink apple cider, eat pumpkin pie, or even better, make pumpkin pie. Oh, I mean, I look forward to the Starbucks pumpkin spice latte, which I have right now. I like to go to pumpkin patches with my son. Football, World Series. I mean, if the weather's like this, it's still nice to go to the park, take a walk, things like that. Of course, there are plenty of other kinds of falls, too, many of which we'll explore over the next hour. Like, for instance, falling head over heels in love. He was allergic to cats, actually, and that was one of my mother's big things. She, was, she said, are you sure that you want to be with somebody who's allergic to cats? We'll also hear about a 19th century entrepreneur whose physical fall nearly erased his name from history. We were telling a story to one of our friends, and um, they said, oh, well, he literally fell off the wagon. Yeah. Plus, we'll visit an all-important kilogram whose weight may or may not be falling. And we'll meet two women who document homicides in D.C. and Baltimore, the rates of which are continuing to go down. First, though, something else that may be going down in the D.C. region is the number of places like this. So we've got oak flooring in this one. It's a little more traditional style. We're talking about residences for sale. Big windows in the back looking out into the yard. Tons of light, which is great. And today we're in D.C.'s Petworth neighborhood where realtor Eric Rice... Parking, yard space, open kitchen... ...is showing me a three-bedroom, three-bathroom house on 4th Street Northwest. This one, how much are they asking? Six nineteen. As of this interview, how long has it been on the market? Fifteen days. So I think this one might be around for a little while, probably not a, a tremendous amount of time. And that, says Rice, is increasingly common. See, over the past five years, D.C.'s for-sale inventory has decreased. This year, for instance, the number of houses on the market is two-thirds what it was last year, and about half of what it was in 2008. As a result, prices are up, and the number of days a house stays on the market is down. You know, as I'm looking through comps, I always look to see how long a house is on the market. A lot of them are single digits. I'd say averagely it's a month or right under that. But I've seen houses like that are gone in one day, five days, six days. And the reason Samia Patel tends to look through comps or comparables, that's the list of criteria from recently sold properties in a neighborhood, like sale price, square footage, the house's age, that kind of thing. Anyway, the reason Patel is so well-versed in comps is because she buys houses in the D.C. area, then renovates and sells them. I started in 2007 when the market was at its peak. And I finished my first house just as the market was tanking. So then I stopped doing it and got back into it about two years ago. So uh, I have actually got a good perspective over like the bubble, the bubble bursting, the bubble coming back. And I'm actually very surprised by now how much of a seller's market it's become again. Patel recently showed me around her latest renovation. It's a five-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Kensington, Maryland, which she recently put on the market. Asking price, $490,000. By the time this story airs, um, I think it'll be snatched up. Well, I don't want to say, because then the story will air, and if it's not, I'll look very stupid. (laughs) I think it should be snatched up. And chances are, it will be. After all, Patel put a ton of time and money into making this house all sparkly and shiny, and as she's come to learn... Fire's like shiny, you know? (laughs) 
But the market's so tight, she says, that even anything but shiny properties are hot right now. I went to an auction for a house in, I think it was Garrett Park. It was like a tiny house. It had mold all over the basement. I don't even think you could be there for more than five minutes safely. There were a hundred people that showed up outside that house for the auction that day. It was listed at 199. It ended up selling for over 400 something thousand dollars. The thing is, whether we're talking about houses for flipping or houses for living, the situation seems to be the same. Inventory is low, prices are high, and as a result, says Lisa Sturdivant, deputy director of the George Mason University Center for Regional Analysis, home ownership rates in the D.C. region are falling. Rates have been falling nationally, but they've been falling faster here. They have fallen from about 69 percent at its peak to about 63 percent. The reasons, she says, are manifold. More jobs in D.C. are attracting more people in their 20s, people who are more likely to rent. Home loans are harder to come by. Foreclosures have shifted more single-family homes to the rental market. And as we've heard, for-sale inventory is down. There was, for a while, a lot of hesitancy for a seller to put their home on the market. They weren't sure, frankly, that they'd be able to find a house to buy themselves if they sold their house. If they were going to stay in the region, they needed to find that move-up house. And there's a lot of people, frankly, who are underwater on their mortgages, and they can't sell their house. Also, Sturdivant says there's a historically low supply of new homes. Because uh, new home construction basically ground to a halt during the recession. We have been seeing an uptick in residential construction here in the region over the last couple of years, but it's been primarily in multifamily rental housing. It's only just very recently that the single-family market has started to come back. Then we have the issue of sequestration. With so many federal employees in the region, there's growing concern about how federal spending cuts may affect people's jobs. If the budget cuts go through, our analysis shows that the state of Virginia, for example, will lose 207,000 jobs. So if those cuts go through? There's going to be less demand for housing here, and that would result in a slowdown in the housing market in the winter and then the spring. If, on the other hand, the federal government makes decisions that inspire more economic certainty, then we'll see a stronger winter and spring housing market. So we don't know. It sort of depends on what the feds do. <laughs> In the meantime, though, Lisa Sturdivant has advice for potential homebuyers out there. If you're going to stay in a region for, they say, generally between five to seven years and you want to be a homeowner, then it's still a good option for people. Though in this region, adds house flipper Samia Patel, you'd better act fast. You just have to jump, you know, in this market. If you see something you love and it's in your price range, or even if you have to stretch a tiny bit, but not to the point of uncomfortable, just do it. You'll never regret buying a house that you love. And realtor Eric Rice agrees. You don't want to act without being educated. So you want to look at the comparables, make sure you're paying a fair price, or if you're paying slightly over the market value, you know that you're paying slightly over the market value. But if you're entering the market, be ready to move quickly or be ready to lose the first house that you love. (laughs) Because in the current market, where sellers are calling the shots, home isn't just where the heart is. More often than not, it's where the fastest, highest bidder is, too. This week's theme is, again, falling. And as we hinted at the top of the show, something that's been falling in D.C. is the number of homicides. 
Last year, D.C. logged 108 murders. As of the middle of this week, we were at 64. Baltimore is seeing a similar trend, although September has been a particularly violent month for Charm City. Baltimore has seen more than 160 homicides this year, 20 of them this month alone. As the homicide rates drop, two journalists are continuing to log each death and make sure no murder goes unnoticed. Emily Friedman has the story. Anna Ditkoff is sitting in her living room with a baby strapped to her chest and a MacBook Air resting on her lap. It's just after 9 a.m., time to make the first call of the day. I think I'm one of the few people with uh, the Baltimore City Police on their favorites on their phone. Hi, Marlene, it's Anna. I'm calling for the homicides. Your computers are down? Okay, um, when should I call back? This is typical, says Ditkoff. Some days she can't get through to the police until the afternoon. So I keep a spreadsheet for each year. I just, I do the date, then it's the name of the victim, their date of birth, their age, their sex, their race. Um, Was it a single homicide or was it a double shooting with one homicide or triple homicide? And then when available motive. Almost all of my motive blocks say unknown. Ditkoff has kept up the spreadsheet since 2004. That's when she began writing a column for the Baltimore City paper called Murder, Inc., which tracks all the homicides in Baltimore. She started it, she says, to fill a void. I assumed that the TV news was covering every homicide or that the daily paper was covering every homicide, which at the time they just weren't. It was just so commonplace in Baltimore. It just wasn't even news. She wanted to know more about these people. Who were they? Where did they live? And who are the suspects? If you're murdered in Baltimore City, your name should appear in a newspaper. And once she began reporting, sometimes the truth was overwhelming. Over the years, I've gotten inured to sort of the day in, day out of doing this column and and hearing so much tragedy. But there are still weeks and incidents that, you know, are very upsetting. There was a man who killed his three children in a hotel room in Baltimore. There was a woman that got killed because she bumped into another woman on the dance floor at a club. I mean, who doesn't bump into someone when they're dancing at a crowded club? And sometimes here that could end your life. Hey, Marlene, it's Anna. Are the uh, computers back up? So have there been any homicides since last we spoke? 2800 block Chesterfield Avenue. Mm -hmm. 22, 26 hours. M-A-R-V-I-T. Last night, Dickoff learns, Peter Marvit was killed as he arrived home from choral rehearsal. For initial report of a what? Multiple gunshot wounds to the torso and head. This case is typical, she says, because it was a shooting and there's no known motive. But unlike most of Baltimore's homicide victims, Marvit was white. African-Americans make up about 60% of Baltimore City's population and approximately 90% of their homicide victims. After she hangs up with the police, Ditkoff takes the data and writes up a short narrative. I like to try and point out some trends, like, you know, if there's been a lot of murders in a particular neighborhood, or to point out to people that maybe this homicide is closer to where they were that day than they think, you know, really giving you a sense of how these things build, you know, what what a whole week in Baltimore is like as far as homicides. Washington, D.C. has just half the per capita homicide rate of Baltimore. As of Thursday, there have been 66 homicides in the district. Back in the early 90s, D.C. was losing nearly 500. 
100 people a year to murder. My first week on the beat at D.C. Superior Court, I was talking to a defense attorney, and I remember very clearly he said, well, why would you cover homicides? You know, there's fewer every year. You're going to be out of work soon. Laura Amico is the writer and editor of a website called Homicide Watch D.C. We're trying to build a resource that goes beyond the typical blotter of just listing what the crimes are. Part of what that means is that we build individual news feeds for every victim and every suspect in D.C. Amico had been a crime reporter for years in California. When she moved here with her husband, she noticed there was no centralized hub for news on every homicide case in the district. If you go on Homicide Watch D.C. now, two years after Amico came up with the concept, you'll find up-to-date court records, original reporting, robust comments from the victim's families and friends, even phone numbers for the detectives assigned to the case. I frequently hear from detectives that they're following Homicide Watch very closely, and because we have the detectives' names and phone numbers for each case on the site, they're actually getting calls. It's not something that we set out to do, but I conceive of journalism as being a community resource. Amigo and her husband, who does all the programming for the site, are currently at Harvard on a journalism fellowship. They're making plans to launch the Homicide Watch platform in as many as 10 cities by the end of the year. And even though crime reporting is fascinating work, Amico says, what she really wants is to one day be put out of a job. I'm Emily Friedman. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, the demise of a court program designed for drug offenders. Drug addiction is not something you just uh, treat once and you're cured. You have to continue to work hard at it every day of your life. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Now that fall is officially here, our theme this week is falling. Get it? Falling for fall. Falling. Fall. Anyway, um, moving on, we'll start off this part of the show with a story about people who've fallen to the fringes of society and a county program that fell out of favor. We're talking about the Loudoun County Drug Court, which since 2004 had been working with people convicted of drug-related offenses. In a split vote earlier this year, Loudoun County supervisors voted to cut funding for the program. Drug courts are based on the idea that nonviolent, drug-addicted offenders need intensive treatment and close supervision to break the cycle of addiction-driven behavior. Jonathan Wilson headed to Berryville, Virginia, to meet up with Loudoun's former drug court coordinator, Michelle White. As they sat outside, she explained why she had to fight for the program every year and what it was like to finally lose that battle. That first docket, do you remember that? I mean, were you in the courtroom? And Certainly. You... We had uh, one person on the docket. Everybody starts with at least one. And um, it, it was 
it wasn't perfect. <laughs> I can say that for sure. It wasn't perfect. It was a learning process. I don't think we ever stopped learning in drug court uh, because you can't. You um, have n- new people with new issues coming along every single day. And so part of it is the art of learning how to deal uh, within the system um, to get those people what they need. Some of the prosecutors, some of the, I mean, the judges didn't get compensation for, for working these extra hours. Mm-hmm. And yet they all seem to be, or at least the judges seem to be very supportive of the drug court. Is that correct? It is extremely supportive. Yes. So why was it still hard to convince people? Um, what would people say to, to argue against drug court? Sure. And this is, these are not arguments that are only ever heard in Loudoun County, sure. of course. The, these are things that are heard in many, many places. So Uh, Some people uh, believe that it's coddling. Um, Some people believe that people should just be incarcerated, that um, drug addiction is not appropriately dealt with in the system other than incarcerating people so they can't use. How did you guys make sure that you weren't coddling these people? Um, Well, it's funny. You could probably ask any one of them if they felt coddled at any point in time, and I'm sure they would say no. When there is someone over your shoulder, particularly in the beginning of the program, saying, what did you do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? Call me tomorrow and tell me what you did. That's a lot of oversight. Uh, Then you have someone coming to your employer. You have someone coming to your house. You have to um, go to treatment intensively every week. You have to come to court to tell two judges whether you've done what you're supposed to do or not. And then if you haven't, you face consequences. When a person would test positive in the Loudoun program for any kind of illegal substance, they went to jail. We have expectations of you. And if those expectations are not met and you're out of control and a danger to yourself, we have to stop the behavior and start over. Did this year feel different than previous years? And was it something that got you emotional? I mean, did you did you have ever have trouble? And I know, you know this is your job and you're a professional person, but did you ever have trouble when you're talking and fighting, keeping your emotions in check? The worst part in all of it is not, you know, poor Michelle because, um, you know, her job is on the line yet again. It, it is that you saw it working. You saw people transform themselves from um, homeless, jobless, um, criminal activity committing drug addicts. And I'm not trying to say that they're bad people. I'm saying that they were in bad places and that we helped them. Um, It wasn't always pretty. It wasn't always fun. But we helped them. And they... um, I think they learned about themselves and they grew as people. And when that had to be taken away and they would say, I, I know I've been in the regular system. It didn't work. That's why I'm here. And then we say to them, I'm sorry, but the regular system is all that is left for you. That's the worst part. This, a job is a job, whether I loved it or not. It's their life. Um, We had people in drug court who died because of their addiction. And so when we would say to people, we are trying to save your life, um, we meant it. That was Michelle White, Loudoun County's former drug court coordinator, talking with WAMU's Jonathan Wilson.
This story came to us via WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and a way for us to reach out for input on stories we're working on. You can find more information about the Public Insight Network by visiting metroconnection.org slash PIN. This next story on today's Falling Show is about something that's falling kind of out of whack. It's the official kilogram of the United States. And yes, there is an official kilogram of the United States. It's a copy, actually, of a platinum iridium kilogram that's stored in France. But anyway, the copy, which you can find in Gaithersburg, Maryland, is used to calibrate everything from gas pumps to bathroom scales. But as Sabri Beneshore explains, the weight of our official kilogram is ever so mysteriously changing. So back in the day, doing trade between countries was kind of tough at times. I'll give you a very good deal. I'll give you 10 smeared laps of spices for two gold pieces. Um, I don't know what a smeared lap is, but it sounds foreign and untrustworthy. So how about 15 what-you-call-its of spice for three gold pieces? You are trying to rip me off. Well, it wasn't that simple at all, but still. You know, if you're measuring mass in smeared laps, and I'm measuring them in what-you-calls, then somehow, if, if you and I want to do business then I have to know how many smurred laps are in a what-you-call to ensure fair trade. That's physicist Patrick Abbott. In 1875, 17 nations got together and decided they needed a standard definition of weight and length so they could all follow the metric system reliably. They made a platinum iridium cylinder that was to be the standard, like the definition of the kilogram for the planet. They kept the original in France and then made official copies of it. And one of them is here. Well, just behind this door uh, and this other door Electronic lock um, right and a couple more doors. Yeah, two, two bell jars, three panes of glass here. And uh, if you want to start counting locks, <laughs> normally uh, four, five, six. And then it's usually in a safe. Um, anything at all will change the mass. Anything on the surface. It's metallic, silver-looking, perfectly polished and small, just a little bigger than a golf ball. It is a cylinder of platinum iridium, 90% platinum, 10% iridium. And it was made in approximately 1889. This is the kilogram for the United States of America, kept behind lock and key at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg. Every prescription you take, every pound of fruit you buy, every ounce of self-loathing you feel when you look at your scale is all calibrated to this piece of platinum iridium metal. Everything that is sold, you know, that is sold by weight is ultimately related to the kilograms. Trillions of dollar industry. But there's a small problem. It is changing. The definition of the kilogram is changing. The original in France and the copies don't match anymore. The standard in France is losing mass compared to the copies. How, how is it possible that it could change? It could be losing mass as a result of things coming out of it. For instance, gaseous impurities can diffuse out. No one really knows. 
The point is, is that it's changing. Now, this change is not like by a whole lot. 50 micrograms over the last 100 years. So like a grain of sand? Grains of sand are actually pretty heavy. They would be on the order of hundreds micrograms. Uh, maybe a human hair? An eyelash? No, that's, that's a pretty... Eyelashes are pretty thick, actually. Mm. The smallest piece of dust that you can see, it's about 17 micrograms. Okay, so we're talking a little less than three particles of dust. Yes, 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 over 100 years. So, like, uh, who cares? The drift in the kilogram becomes important to me because of the precision and the accuracy that's required for my particular laboratory. Mark Rufinock calibrates scales for a living. He's with Heuser Neue and sometimes teaches at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. In our particular laboratory, we definitely see those changes. We are always adjusting for the latest information um, from the calibrations that we receive from NIST. And in essence, there is some frustration because it always feels like we've got this moving target. So that means he can't guarantee the measurement of super teensy tiny amounts. We're already seeing the need for, me for measuring these smaller things in the biotechnologies and in the pharmaceutical worlds. Pharmaceuticals already measure things out in pretty small quantities. If you think about a pill that you take, oftentimes there's only a few milligrams or what we would say a few grains of salt that are actually the active ingredient in each pill. The rest of it's just kind of starch or filler that helps us swallow down that active ingredient. So what scientists and governments around the world are trying to do is get rid of the kilogram. Not the idea of the kilogram, but the piece of metal. So they're trying to tie the definition of the kilogram to something cosmically stable. So they're looking at something called the Planck constant. The Planck constant is a constant that arises out of quantum mechanics. That's physicist Patrick Abbott again. But that depends then on the uh, electrical parameters like the Josephson. Um, look, it's, it's just math, okay? It's a number relating light and energy. It comes up over and over and over again in quantum mechanics. Also looking at something called Avogadro's constant. The point is, is that these things aren't going to change. And they've done this for a few other units, like a second is defined by the time taken for a certain number of changes in a cesium atom, or a meter is related to how far light travels in a certain period of time. But for the kilogram, they can't quite measure the physical constant that they need, the Planck constant, well enough for it to be worthy of being an international standard. So more and more countries are trying to get this right over the next few years. Until then, those platinum iridium cylinders are the standard, even as they ever so slowly and mysteriously drift apart from one another. I'm Sabri Beneshore. For pictures of the U.S. kilogram and more on its history, visit our website, metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Boulevard Manor in Arlington, Virginia, and Shaw in Northwest D.C. My name is Ray Malewski, and I live on Q Street, and I've been there for 26 years. Shaw came about as a result of Shaw Junior High School, but the original borders of what was to be called Shaw was up from the, used to be the Carnegie Library in front of the convention center, all the way up to U Street, then from New Jersey Avenue over to, as far as some say, to 16th Street. 
They're good, solid homes here. And my house is where the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters had their headquarters for Washington, and the March on Washington was planned in my house. So I'm, I'm really proud of that fact. It has always been a very diverse neighborhood, and lots of different kinds of people have lived here. There's been a little bit of everybody who's contributed, but it's always been a working-class neighborhood. And this was pretty rural, and there still are a few old farmhouses in the neighborhood, which is kind of cool. I'm really excited about the O Street Market finally being rejuvenated, because I think that will give a whole new face to our community. Phil Klingelhofer. I've lived in Boulevard Manor for the past 24 years. Boulevard Manor encompasses approximately 460 homes. It's in western Arlington, uh, close to seven corners, and the east and west are two parks. Well, the parks are really wonderful. They're one of the treasures that we have in this uh, neighborhood. Bluemont is one of the largest parks in Arlington. It's got foxes and deer and owls and all the kinds of neat animals that you'd like to have around you. The Reeves Farm is, is the last operating dairy farm in Arlington. It's currently part of Bluemont Park. Nelson Reeves himself uh, was born in 1900 and there are stories about how he would sit out on his porch and regale the neighbors with his stories of being a farmer back in the early 20s. And the farmhouse is a white clapboard farmhouse with a simple porch out front. It's the typical farmhouse that they would have built in the 1880s or 1860s. And that particular farmhouse sits on this wonderful hill I mentioned, and that's a fantastic sledding spot. That is one of the main activities in the neighborhood that brings everyone together whenever we have a good uh, snowstorm. We heard from Phil Klingelhofer in Boulevard Manor and Ray Malevsky in Shaw. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Now, folks, we pass the microphone to you to read from your letters and emails. Last week, Emily Friedman did a story about artist Nicole Bourget, who's created these life-sized oil paintings of random strangers who pass on the street. She's about to put those portraits back out on the street with signs saying, if this is you, this painting is yours to take. Well, our listener Kathleen loved this idea and writes that she, quote, will probably be looking around town for any and all paintings of myself just in case. A few weeks ago, Jonathan Wilson took us inside the admissions offices at two local private schools. That story prompted this response from Yvette in Clinton, Maryland. She writes, I heard Metro Connections report on private school admissions policies. I listened intently, having gone through the process twice in the last two years. I have to say the representatives from the schools were totally disingenuous. As a parent, I did not receive any offers for help or possible placements in other schools that may have been a good fit for our son. We only received a two- to three-sentence rejection letter. He's a freshman at Gonzaga. 
everyone else's loss. And finally, Sabri Beneshore's recent story on tourist farmers, also known as woofers, received some enthusiastic responses from people who've taken part in this sort of apprenticeship on the land. Susan writes, When my husband and I took a year off to backpack around the world, we used woofing as a way to get to know locals and culture and to help us defray costs. We woofed in Australia and New Zealand. We worked on a lavender farm and a miniature horse and cattle farm. It was a fantastic time. I would recommend it to everyone. If you'd like to comment on a story we've recently aired or suggest an idea for a future story, send us a message. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. And we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. After the break, we pour ourselves a tall, cold one and continue our series on D.C.'s most colorful dive bars. This is a neighborhood establishment. This is a place where the community gathers. There's members of Congress, lobbyists, lawyers, certified auto mechanics. We all come here. This is the other Capitol Hill. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And now that fall is officially here, on this week's show, we are, appropriately enough, falling. We've heard about the falling number of homes for sale in the D.C. housing market. And later on, we're going to share your tales of falling in love. We'll also take a dive on Capitol Hill for the latest in our DC Dives series. But first, we're going to get a little bit literal with our falling theme and talk about a guy who 123 years ago took quite the tragic tumble. It's the topic of our regular series, The Location. In which Kim Bender, author of the blog The Location, helps us explore the hidden history of Washington's places, people, and culture. And this week, we're checking out a location. And what location are we visiting today, Kim Bender? Not too far from the site of that fateful 19th century fall. Today, we are standing right in between what once was 1225 and 1227 10th Street Northwest. Today, 1225 and 1227 10th Street are open spaces, adjacent long and narrow tracts of land where row houses once stood. At the back of the lots is a quaint carriage house, and we can actually thank that carriage house for the story we're about to hear, since it was the house's owners that led Kim to uncover this little-known piece of D.C. history. The people who live in the carriage house are Anna and Dan Cahoe, and they own Goodwood, which is a store on U Street that sells vintage furniture and old objects. So I was at Goodwood, and Anna Cahoe approached me and started talking to me, and I remembered that I had looked up the building that she was living in at that point, and it's called the Louise Hand Laundry. It's on 12th Street, um, right around the corner. And I said, you know, I, I was researching it for my blog, and she said, well, maybe you want to come write about the new place we're moving into, which is this carriage house, and maybe, maybe you could look up the history and see if there's something interesting behind it. And I researched tons and tons of, of addresses and properties around the city all the time trying to find out if there's some interesting history and usually come up short and this one had something really tragic but interesting let's hear the story so in 1887 
Samuel Huntress got a building permit for this lot. He was what the newspaper later called a perambulating coal oil dealer, which basically meant that he sold coal from his wagon. He built both 1225 and 1227, and he and his wife and his son lived in 1225. Two years later, on August 9th, 1889, the elderly huntress, we're not really sure how old he was, was riding in his wagon with his employee, James Combs, who's 26 and black, which kind of comes into play later in the story. They're riding their wagon, having just come back from selling coal. Witnesses all said they were very, very drunk. Other witnesses saw them turning around the corner of Blackton Alley, right in back of the carriage house here, getting really into a fight. Huntress punched Combs. Combs fell backwards in the wagon. The blow to Combs caused Huntress to go off balance. He lost control of the carriage. The carriage hit a building, and they were both thrown off the wagon, and Huntress hit his head on the cobblestones, and he died. What happened to Combs? Did did he survive? He survived. He was fine, except for the fact that he was immediately arrested in suspicion of murder. And over the next couple of days, the coroner did an inquest to try to figure out the cause of death of Samuel Huntress and whether it was Combs's fault. What I think is an interesting part of the story is that Combs was acquitted by six witnesses who all corroborated his story. But all six of the witnesses were black. And so I find that to be very interesting that in 1889, a black man who was arrested seemingly with no cause was absolved of any wrongdoing by his peers. Okay, so Huntress had both of these buildings. He died in this accident. How did we get from those two buildings, those two long, skinny row houses, to what we have now, which is all this empty space where these long, skinny row houses used to be? 1227, we know, has been gone for a while. I'm not sure how long. 1225 came down in 2009 after a raise permit had been approved. Actually, the woman who owned this building before the Cahos tried really hard to save the building, but it was in too much disrepair. So it's been a problem for a while. And I'm sure that once 1227 was gone, 1225 didn't have a lot of support because they shared the same inner structure wall. So I wonder how much that had to do with it, too. But lest you think this story has an unhappy ending, something you should know about Anna and Dan Cahoe, they are unrelenting history buffs with a deep passion and respect for preserving the past. That's why they've spent the past year fixing up the carriage house that stood behind Samuel Huntress's two buildings. And now that Kim Bender has unearthed Huntress's story, Anna says she and Dan are planning a little homage to our nearly forgotten perambulating coal oil dealer. We had always considered painting an old sign on the back of the building. We tried to figure out what the building was. So now we are designing a sign that says Huntress Coal Oil Company. (laughs) So if you two hadn't come together, you wouldn't have known? No, because I had looked. I tried to find information about it, and I couldn't. And I research so many places and usually come up with nothing. So it was very cool that it was something. There was like a really interesting story behind the place. To read even more about this interesting story, you can find a link to Kim Bender's blog, The Location, on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you've stumbled across a hidden piece of D.C. history you think we should cover on The Location, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. 
Time now for one of our favorite monthly segments, DC Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. This time around, we head to Capitol Hill, where Jared Walker takes us to an iconic bar that goes back decades. On the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 4th Street Southeast, just off Seward Square, sits the tune-in restaurant and bar. In many ways, this bar's history is a story about a family. Owner Lisa Nardelli's grandfather purchased the building in 1947. He was the first generation, then he worked here his whole life. Uh, My father then worked here his whole life, and I'm the third generation. Capitol Hill has changed significantly since Joe Nardelli set up shop. So it might surprise some to find a dive bar in an affluent neighborhood most famous for its marble column government buildings and picturesque row houses. But bar regular Don Kanievsky says Capitol Hill residents and the people who work here are no different from anyone else. This is a neighborhood establishment. This is the other Capitol Hill. And this is a place where the community gathers. There's members of Congress, lobbyists, lawyers, certified auto mechanics. We all come here. This gathering place almost shuttered for good on June 22, 2011, when a kitchen fire caused widespread damage to the bar. Nardelli was faced with a painful decision. Everyone kept saying, why choose to rebuild at this point? So much of the character is gone, so much of the the personality. You won't be able to get a lot of that history back. But to the delight of the community, she chose to rebuild and reopen. Bartender Matt Manley recalls his surprise at the outpouring of support the bar received at the time. I had no idea that so many people would turn out and um, have a fundraiser for the staff, you know, and really pitch in to help uh, clean it up and empty it out when we were initially getting all the things out. And I never thought regulars would show up and help out, you know, at their neighborhood bar, but they did, and I was flattered by all of it. With her renovations, Nardelli attempted to strike a balance between introducing new items and saving old ones, including the bar's oddball collection of taxidermy. We were able to restore everything that was on the walls. We painstakingly took down every single item, every dead roadkill that was ever up on the wall. We took down and we we chemically treated and we put in a climate control environment for the course of the fire restoration. So let me get this straight. You, You chemically treated and climate control stored stuffed deer. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) lovingly, painstakingly, yes. They went to a taxidermist that does work with the Smithsonian, and he's done such phenomenal work. They they look better than they they ever looked. (laughs) I toured the bar's new digs with John Solly Solomon, a former neighborhood regular who now owns and operates Solly's Tavern on U Street. I can't believe this new tin ceiling. That's, that's great, you know, throwback there. It's wood paneling, the pleather booze. But none of them have rips in them. They fixed all of those. No duct tape over them. Plenty of dead animals and antlers on the wall. Tons of pictures of the bar from way back. Halfway through, Solly notices something else that changed. The smoking ban. Because the haze that used to be in here and the way the, everything would yellow over time. You don't have that anymore. It takes a lot longer for something to look old. 
I asked Solly if that would be a problem for the tune-in. No, I think it's just accepted now. You know, you can replicate it by not dusting. And tune-in regular Don Kanievsky isn't worried about the bar either. He says it's only changed superficially. You know, the people never change. Uh, I mean, they do, but the same attitude prevails. It never pretends to be more than it is. Breakfast anytime, off the corner on the square, and no matter who you are, you're always welcome. I'm Jared Walker. Do you have a favorite dive bar you think we should visit for this series? If so, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. Or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. We'll end today's show with a kind of falling that may be the most mysterious and universal kind there is. Falling in love. We recently asked people in WAMU's Public Insight Network to share their stories about the moment they fell in love. Here are some of their tales, as told to Metro Connection's Rafaela Benin. I'm Minos Apple. I live in Falls Church, and I'm 29 years old. Uh, I'm Craig Apple. I'm Minos's husband, and I'm 28 years old. He's a year younger. That's okay, though. (laughs) (laughs) When I knew that I was in love with her, it's such a difficult question to answer. I had no clue that I liked him. I mean, she says I might have had a crush on her, but I didn't know that I liked her. So we met at Ashoka, which is a nonprofit, and I used to be a receptionist there. And I was a temp for about six weeks. So uh, he asked me if I play chess, and I said, yeah, of course I play chess. (laughs) And so uh, I said, all right, let's do it. And that chess game turned into five chess games and five hours. That was it. We uh, were first, I guess, quote-unquote, date. And after that, it was his birthday, and uh, I had to buy him a gift. And when I was signing the card, I don't know, should I put sincerely... Minosh or love Minosh and that was like the biggest dilemma and it doesn't seem like a really big deal right now but it was such a huge deal like what do I say and I think I ended up saying love Minosh yeah so I came across the card the other day and it's a really (laughs) nice message of you're a really nice person I think you're great sincerely Minosh sincerely what (laughs) what does this mean (laughs) but I think that's when I realized like oh my god I like this guy so that was when I knew My husband is Mark Dosh, and he's from Silver Spring, Maryland. This is Jinzy Lamprecht, otherwise known as Virginia Lamprecht, who has completely enchanted me for 17 years. I went one night over to Nanny O'Brien's, which is a nice little pub. It was September 25th of 1996. And, um... And, well, it was September 25th, 1995... And soon a young woman came in. She had just really long, thick, curly hair that was just luxuriant, you know, just super full. And I love lots of hair. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this gorgeous man, and he was sitting between two friends of mine. So I said, Well, I'm just going to hang out here for a while. And as our conversation continued, I realized that. I might be meeting someone really, really important. And uh, I was heading out, and I think Mark asked me if I wanted to ride home, and I thought to myself, hmm, 
hmm, I usually don't allow people to drive me home from bars. But I said, okay, you can drive me home. And then before I got out of the car, he had his hand on the stick shift, and I, uh, we interlaced hands. We interlaced fingers. And I felt this almost electricity, and I felt... Something electric happened just in that simple gesture. And if I was to say, when I fell in love, that was the point, and I'll never forget it. Those were members of WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN, speaking with Metro Connections' Rafaela Benin. And if you missed our shout-out about PIN earlier in the show, you can get more information and become a member at metroconnection.org slash PIN. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Sabria Benashore, Emily Friedman, Jared Walker, and Rafaela Benin. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone, Lauren Landau, and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, our Door to Door theme, No Girl, and our theme for the location, Turn Your Face, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll dive into a pretty big topic these days, diplomacy. We'll check out D.C.'s ambassadorial real estate. And in the heat of election season, we'll meet people trying to be more diplomatic in political debates with family and friends. Plus, we'll jam with embassy workers who've begun moonlighting as hard-rocking musicians. There are countries, there are problems, there are going to be always problems, but that's our job as well, to have a better, safer, and peaceful world in harmony. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.